Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can find more information about the podcast at twoguystothedarktowercame.com. You can also email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. In this episode, we'll cover book seven of The Dark Tower, The Dark Tower, part two, chapters five through eight. Let's start the show. As the Cotet travels back to Roland's world, they encounter Ted Brodigan, Dinky Earnshaw, and Stanley, who they soon find out is Roland's friend, Shimi. They are there to rescue the Cotet. Using Shimi's teleportation power, they end up at Steak Teat, a rock formation overlooking Thunderclap, where their new friends are breakers. In a full chapter aside, we are introduced to Pimbley Prentice, the master of Thunderclap, a.k.a. Algul Ciento, a.k.a. Blue Heaven, a.k.a. Devar Toy, and his chief security officer, Finley Otego, a Tahin. There we learn about what is happening at Thunderclap and the unique people who work there. The Cotet explores the cave Ted directs them to, where they find a cache of weapons, an ATV for Susanna, and a map of Thunderclap. They also share Kef and realize that time is probably short for one or more of them, thanks to a feeling of Kashum. The section ends with the Cotet listening to Ted Brodigan's story on a reel-to-reel tape recording and planning their next steps, all while, unbeknownst to them, Mordred roosts above, listening. Pretty spooky. Jay, a lot happened in this section. That was a really long recap. The thing that stood out most for me is that in this series, there really haven't been a lot of characters. When we went back and looked at book one, The Gunslinger, that book was, what, almost 300 pages long? And I think it had maybe five important named characters in it. There's Mm -hmm. Roland, Jake, the man in black, Brown, and a few townspeople in tall, including the woman preacher. Mm -hmm. So I could basically count the most, I can't even remember all their names, but the most important named characters I can name on one hand. Here, in this one section, we are introduced to about five seemingly important characters that we're going to be expected to know and follow along. Um, What's King doing at this late late game, introducing all these characters, especially ones that I'm having a hard time pronouncing? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's like uh, we just went into like a Stargate episode or something like that, and we're just like, ah, crap, now we got to learn a whole new planet. (laughs) Well, I think the thing that stood out for me as we talk about this section is how many of these characters seem to be outsiders in their situation. And that's something we talked briefly about in our last episode about Mordred seeming to be outside the circle of the Cotet. And that seems Mm -hmm. to be a very deliberate um, way of framing that character. But he's not the only one in this section. It seems like some of the other characters are outsiders in some way. Yeah, we meet Ted, or or we get to know Ted all over again, perhaps if you've read Hearts in Atlantis. But this is the first time that we've gotten to know Ted from the perspective of the Dark Tower, or the worlds of the Dark Tower, or the mythos of the Dark Tower. We really get to know what's going on in his head and his life experience. And a big part of that is that he has always considered himself to be an outsider. He knows that he's different. He's always known that he's different from everybody else because of these mental powers that he has, the same powers that make him a world-class breaker, 
are also the same powers that isolate him from everybody else in the society around him. So when Ted explains how that makes him an outsider, it's easy to see that that's probably true of all the breakers. Mm. But the only two others that we meet are Dinky and Shimi. And we already pretty much know Shimi from book four yep. when we were in Magus with Roland. And Shimi was certainly an outsider then. It was perhaps for different reasons, but maybe a big part of what made him different and apart from the society around him then was his mental abilities that he hadn't fully figured out for himself yet. So there's definitely a common thread here, whether you're Mordred and you're an outsider because you can't fit in because you're this human spider hybrid <laughs> that is the spawn of the most evil being in the, in the universe. Um, or you have ESP or, you know, breaker powers or however you want to put it. Um, you can't fit in or it's hard to fit in. And so you are left outside of the, the main circle. And even within this circle of breakers, it seems as if Ted and Dinky and Shimi have found each other and are outside that main, like all the other breakers seem to be, as far as we know, accepting of their fate and just willing to take the free food and drink and sex simulations to do mm -hmm. their job, whereas Ted and Dinky and Shimi seem to have a higher purpose. So that places them even yet another step removed and outside of the main circle. Right. I don't even think it just applies to these characters, which Mordred obviously being the antagonist for this section is one, but Ted, Dinky, and Shimi seem to be helpful to our protagonist, but even some of the secondary characters. So we're introduced to Pimley, who is a former warden from our world, and he seems to be outside. Like, he's just the guy doing his job, and, you know, he's okay with, leaving his world for this other one and he he seems to accept it and then even the low man Trampus who we find out Ted has sort of befriended and he's unlike all the other low men in that when he laughs it's an actual laugh and he seems to actually have feeling behind it as opposed to the graveling noises that the other ones make when they laugh and he has yeah. he has actual interest in the breakers and seems to be interested in talking to them and finding out about them and of course Ted uses this but those two characters seem to stand outside their normal circles as well. Yeah, Trampus is a low man who's not so low. <laughs> what would that be? Sort of medium? A medium man? <laughs> He's just kind of in a crouch. <laughs> a crouching man. <laughs> crouching man, hidden tahin. Ah. So when thinking about this, there is a quote that King has towards the end of this section. And he says that talent won't be quiet, whether it's a talent for safe cracking, thought reading, or dividing 10-digit numbers in your head, it screams to be used. And this is how Ted justifies in his tape-recorded story why he was drawn to becoming a breaker and why he continues to be one, even though bringing about the end of the world is not necessarily something he thought he'd use his powers for. He initially wanted, mm -hmm. he initially wanted to use it to stop world war one if he could, and the doctors wouldn't do it. And he says, you know, when you have a talent, it won't be quiet. It must be used. It's going to come to the surface. You're going to feel 
lacking in some way if you don't have an opportunity to use it. And because of that, it's going to just show itself. And it made me wonder if that's one of the reasons these folks are outside. You had already alluded to the fact that his power sets him aside. But if we look at it from another perspective, our gunslingers have talents as well. Yes, very much so. And that's what's brought them into this world and become outsiders. So we saw this initially way back when Roland had his coming of age. And when he became a gunslinger for the first time, he was immediately separated from his friends. Mm -hmm. And part of that is because of his talent, right? He was faster than everyone else and he was able to to come through that coming of age and all of a sudden people treated him differently. And it's not as a result of anything that changed physically in him. It's because of that talent that showed itself. Right. And I think that all gunslingers are outsiders as well in a similar way that all breakers seem to be outsiders. But I think that Roland as the gunslinger, the titular gunslinger, (laughs) he is the quintessential outsider. Yeah. He is the, he's the lone agent in the world just wandering the earth that's how that's who he is when we first meet him in book one and he is outside of everything he's outside of time he's outside of place he's outside of society um so he is the quintessential outsider and it's only because this group of gunslingers has become a family has become a unit has become in the parlance of this book a quartet that they are outsiders but they're outsiders together so they have their own circle Hmm. and that's one of the things that enrages mordred it's it's he sees the circle it actually takes a physical form that he's able to observe that every time roland and the others do anything whether it's just stopping for a rest on the side of the trail or finding a place to, uh, to sleep at night at the end of the day they always form a circle and they don't even realize it. It's a literal circle because they are a circle of this quartet. So I think they've been together for so long over the span of the story that we've kind of forgotten that they themselves are outsiders. They themselves are outside of everything else. Every time they've encountered another town or another group of people, they've either been heralded as saviors or or just superior examples of of human beings mm-hmm. or they've been feared instinctively or even rejected because of the reputation that gunslingers have further perpetuating being an outsider you mentioned ka many times in that description mm-hmm. and it seems as in this story ka has brought these people together and ka has even brought together not only roland and his crew but meeting up with shimi again and meeting up with ted and getting to this point where everything seems to be centered around this point in time at Thunderclap. Everyone has this sense that things are coming to an end. We joked about that at the beginning of, of this book, that we knew that yeah. the end was near because all the characters says were saying things like, hey, I think this is the beginning of the end, or the end is near, or things are coming to an end. But it's not only just Roland and his quartet who are saying it, but even people like Pimley and his uh, head of security, Finley, are also saying that, like, oh, we think things are coming to a breaking point, excuse the pun, with, with everything going on with the beams. And we we know that we don't have communication anymore since the last group of Dr. Doom robots went out. And so something's happening, and all the characters are saying that. It's And so, to your point, it seems like Ka's leading to something here, and that leads us into our next section, 
Yes, the swiftly tilting Ka planet. <laughs> yeah, because over the course of this section of the book, Ka is, as you say, very important and in a recurring uh in a recurring topic. Roland comes to the conclusion that the only way that they can achieve their goals is to change Ka. We've talked about how much of Ka is sort of like predestination and therefore unchangeable, and how much of it is just more of a these are the the ruts in the the wagon trail, and if you steer hard enough, you can go off the trail completely. It's going to be a rough road because the road is gone, but you can steer off of it. And, and where does Ka kind of fall into that kind of metaphor? And it seems like it's more like the wagon ruts, but that rough road usually comes at a high cost, and Roland even warns them. And that's kind of what leads into the whole Kashum thing, where they all have this sense of dread that something very, very bad is going to happen. And that bad thing feels like that one person or more in their katet is going to die mm -hmm. in achieving this goal of saving Stephen King and saving the Breakers, or at least shutting down Al Glusiento. One of them is going to have to sacrifice their lives. And there's just a lot going on here. There, we find out that there are multiple Ka's, yeah. apparently. Like, I kind of have just been working under the idea that Ka is analogous to destiny, and destiny is kind of this thing that's outside of us. And if it's even a thing that is real, there's just one destiny. But here it's established that there's a different Ka in each world or each version of the world. So there's a Ka in world. 99 and a ka in world 19 and so when 19 and 99 combine that's when stephen king gets to get run over by a van right and so like all right so what does it mean to have more than one ka and what does it mean for them to combine so there's a lot going on here which is why the whole the whole ka planet is swiftly tilting <laughs> it can make your head hurt when you think about yes. this um <laughs> And the the most interesting fact about this is the fact that Roland says that we're going to be able to change Ka, but it comes at a great cost. And as with all things in Roland's world, it has its own name that we're introduced to only when it becomes important. Mm -hmm. Roland has never mentioned Kashum up to this point, even though it seems like there was opportunities for it to have happened or, or come up. But um, he's like, oh yeah, remember Jake, that feeling you had when you thought Callahan was going to die and then he died? That was Kashum, and now you're feeling it now, aren't you? Like, oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> and so we get this, we get the, the idea of Kashum, we get this fate. The funny thing for me is as Roland realizes this is going to happen and he's obviously okay with it. I mean, he's let Jake die previously. Mm -hmm. So we know that hey, one of us is going to sacrifice ourselves or one of us is going to die to get to the tower, but that's okay. That's the way it's going to be. And Roland has already instinctively said, oh, it's not going to be me. I think King King says that, right? King says. Yeah, never even occurred it to It never him even occurred it... to Roland that he might be the one to have to do it. And I can't tell if this is King foreshadowing that it's going to be Roland that dies or if it's King, as he often does, undercutting his own tension and making it clear that it's not going to be rolling so I, I, I obviously we're not going to i don't know what's going to happen but it's just king once again sort of playing with me the reader like ah what does this mean how should i interpret this yeah it's like you don't think roland had time while they were just 
you know, walking the earth, like between adventures, you know, you know, the off screen time, if you will, <laughs> to like conjugate Ka. <laughs> Here are all the forms you know? of Ka in my world. Yes. There's Ka. There's Ka-Tet. Oh, there's this other thing, Ka-Shum. Let me tell you about that. And so then now in book seven, when he says, hey, you know that thing you're feeling? Kashum. Oh, yeah, we know about that. We <laughs> studied that on the trail after we uh, shot Shardik. That was a great day. It's an important enough feeling that they have this almost Catholic Last Supper type of ceremony in mm. which they share kef. Um, they all feel this feeling of Kashum, and Roland takes this time to to have the ceremony and make sure that he tells them that he loves them all. Um, it's almost a, like I said, a last supper piece or we're getting ready to go into battle. Let's, you know, gather around the troops once more. Yeah. And it's also King giving us the reader a chance to truly embrace this moment of the group of characters being together for what feels like the last time he lays it on pretty thick. Like this is it guys. You yep. know, this is this is our last rest. This is the last calm before the storm. After this storm, things will be very different mm -hmm. and we'll never have this again. And it was pretty moving, especially for me, like each successive connection, each successive sharing of water that Roland did, the room got more dusty for <laughs> me. So like when he finally got down to Oi, and Oi is like saying in his limited speech that he loves Roland and then he's like lapping up the last drops of Perrier and like, oh, you know, but it was like, you know, emotionally manipulating. It's like when the soundtrack in the movie has just just the right tune in it that makes the your emotions swell. It was one of those moments for me. So. And I, being the cold, heartless person I am, was just flipping the pages, getting to, when's the action coming? When's the action coming? I want to find out what's next. Give me a break. Oh, it's just Perrier. Enough of this boring feelings crap. <laughs> <laughs> so, whereas our quartet has said we're willing to try to buck the wagon ruts in the metaphor that you're using and, and change Ka, we really see that there are plenty of other characters who have an acquiescence to Ka. Mm. It almost made me wonder if this acquiescence to Ka shows the banality of evil in this section. I found it really odd when we got to the chapter with Pimley and Finley that it has been so rare in this book when we get, and not in this book, in this whole series, when we get chapters told from outside of our main quartet. Yeah. Um, they've been few and far between. When they have happened, it's been maybe the man in black. We had that really weird one in book six with, with the, the TikTok man. Well, or that was earlier on with the one with the TikTok man. The one in book six with the woman that Susanna and Mia sort of freak out. Uh, she's the lawyer in New York City who has mm. the bag of shoes. Um, so when these happen, because they're so rare, they really stand out to me. And all of a sudden, you know, we're almost a third of the way into this book, and there's this whole chapter with Pimley and Finley that really builds up the world of Thunderclap and gives us an idea. I mean, this is really the first place where the whole idea of breaking is explained to us in detail, whereas we mm -hmm. understand how it works, that there's these people shooting their psychic powers up sort of perpendicular to the beam, trying to chip away at it. And it's so banal right it's not evil as you would expect it it's just sort of middle management running 
the world and making sure that this happens. And we don't get the sense that Pimley's evil in any way. He was a decent warden when he was at Attica or corrections officer. And he answered a newspaper ad and was told, hey, here's going to be your new deal. And he's sort of like, okay. And Finley's sort of the same way, right? He He's a Tahin, but he just sort of wants to curl up with a crime novel at the end of the day and do his investigations and look at the data and the telemetry to figure out what's going on. But he doesn't seem to have any great passion for this project either than just making sure things are running the way they're supposed to run. And it's just so not evil as we get to sense it normally. There's no Darth Vader here mm-hmm. whipping the whipping the slaves and making sure things happen. It's just sort of like, eh. Yeah, it is very puzzling. And I mean, on the one hand, it's I, I kind of feel like this is easy to observe in real life all the time. But when the stakes are this high and everybody that you just listed is involved is aware of what those stakes are like why doesn't anybody cry off <laughs> i i understand the motivation of the satisfaction of a job well done i understand the motivation of embracing craftsmanship in your work but if your work is leading to your own destruction let alone that of the entire universe and or all of matter or whatever <laughs> this really boils down to Surely there must be some other place where you can ply your trade and not bring about the end of all things. And it's just, I mean, I I don't get it. Like Pimley's a good warden and he gets this job and he's still a good warden. Like he's not even like a mean guy. No, his, his, (laughs) they say that his way of torturing people is to offer them a cookie an hour and a half after he probably should have. And that's, him holding out there's no yeah there's there's no uh sticks under the fingertips or pulling out of of nostril hairs or anything that's going to torture somebody it's very <laughs> low-key torture like hey look at that cookie i'm not gonna let you eat it for an hour and a half these cookies aren't warm right out of the <laughs> oven no <laughs> the horror the horror <laughs> and part of this is their justification seems to be well the world's gonna end anyway so I might as well just keep doing my job and make it happen. And because if I don't do it, someone else will, or it'll happen at some point. And it's just sort of very low key, like you said. I mean, like the Tahin, they, they seem to be a race specific to at least one of the alternate worlds. And they don't exist on like Stephen King's Earth. Right. Unless they're visiting. And the, the low men are this crossbreed between humans and tahine so it's almost enough for you to sort of just dismiss it as somehow the crimson king has managed to enlist the services through the means of fear magic manipulation of some sort of this entire race of beings like every tahine is a subject of the crimson king and then you're like all right well if i'm limited to that as my employer I guess I'll be the best uh, Taheen I can be, right? Yep. Um, but why would a guy like Prentice, who was a good warden and probably a, a good man and hard worker and all that stuff, finds out the truth of this job offer, isn't just driven mad within days right? and, <laughs> and takes some drastic action to try to end this, this folly that he has become a part of? Like, like, you know, fight back, 
something. Yep. Instead, he's just like, eh, you know, keep <laughs> and, calm and carry on, right? And the worst part is, is they all seem to realize that the Crimson King is no longer in charge like he used to be, or he's yeah. gone so mad that it, they're not even sure what's going on, and yet they still don't fight back or lay down their arms or whatever. So, And the flip side of this is that while these folks are acquiescence to Ka, we see, and this gets back to our first point about how talent seems to win through and is always, it's it's a light that shines through. The other mm-hmm. side of that is people like Roland and their talent as a gunslinger and their willingness to put it all on the line to shape things. And we got a sense that Stephen King, the character in these books, is that way as well. That yes. his talent is being such a fantastic writer that he brings these things to life and that his talent shines through in some way and that what is working through him, whether it's Ka or something else is when he gets the inspiration to write these novels. They're different from his other works that he has this feeling about him. Like I'm going to write the dark tower and it all just sort of comes through me. Um, And so Mm -hmm. that becomes the flip side to this. So that seems like it'll be important. The fact that we spend so much time with Pimley and Finley, makes me think that King King the writer is trying to show us something here and, and pull that out. Yes. And Brodigan's a piece of that too, right? Like he seems to be resigned to his fate. And yet when he has this opportunity with Dinky and Shimi to form this, I'm guessing they're almost like their own quartet. Mm. Yeah. To do something, they're going to take advantage of this. And that chapter ends with Pimley and Finley no longer looking down at the people in the study, but sort of looking up at the beam trying to be broken. And they miss that Brodigan has a small smile on his face as if he knows something that they don't, that there's some sort of plan that's coming together. And throughout, we're told how important, because of Ted's power, he constantly has to shield his thoughts from the outside. Mm -hmm. And so he gets this short opportunity to give a little bit of a smile like, something big's coming yes so we shall see in the meantime there's a lot of things in this section that just made our heads explode Jay. yeah <laughs> yeah indeed yeah in a in a section of the book that was so plot heavy it it still managed to be jam-packed with just new information about this world and the characters within it and one of those things is that dinky who is himself a character from a Stephen King story, references another King character, Carrie, when he says the line, why do you always have to act like Carrie at the prom? You know, <laughs> And then, and he says this to a third King character, Eddie, and this left my head spinning. Like, <laughs> like this is, this is just beyond metafiction. I think this is just King fucking with us. Right. <laughs> and I, I love it, but it's just like, wow, the, this is crazy. It, it, like, does, is Dinky is this is this just that these books exist in all these worlds and King's a character in some of them and an author in others and just depending on what which world you came from maybe maybe you read Carrie maybe you are Carrie I don't yeah. know <laughs> yeah and is it because they've seen the Sissy Spacek movie I mean there's movies always showing at the uh, the Blue Heaven movie theater. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe it's the Stephen King movies that they're seeing on top of that. And that's what's making them familiar with all these things. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> when you can have anything you want, it makes you wonder if, if that's what they're going for. That's mm-hmm. like, oh, no, not Maximum Overdrive again. 
So um, another thing that kind of make, made my head explode was this idea of the passage of time in Algul Ciento versus Midworld versus other worlds like Keystone Earth. Um, it's kind of like a time travel paradox sort of wrapped up here where when you're in or near Algul Ciento, time is either very, very slowly progressing compared to everywhere else or it's not progressing at all. Like people like Pimley, who is a human being, seems to have been there for decades and decades, but is not apparently much older. He's he's more overweight than he was when he first arrived because he has such decadent food and, and <laughs> other things to entice him. But he hasn't really aged much. And we learn that uh, Finley is over 300 years old, but that might just be that Tahin are long lived. I don't know. Um, but the breakers seem to have just be there for all time, no time. Shimi is older than he was in Magus, but not a lot, not the same amount older that Roland is. Right. And that's making my head hurt too, like just trying to square this circle. And if you go, if Ted is drawn into Algociento from his original life, and then he sneaks back out that one time with Shimi's help and then has his whole hearts in atlantis adventure and then gets dragged back he's has he aged much is i mean he it seemed like he was already kind of an, an older gentleman by the time he first got brought in there so that's why he's an old guy not because he you know he's been a breaker for but maybe he's been a breaker for 500 years and we don't know right we just like it's not clear so how does time work here does time work here is it important and if it does what implications are there? I'm guessing we don't need to know the details. I sort mm -hmm. of realized that was happening and said, I trust King on this. I'm just going to go with the flow here. Yeah. Because if you think about it too hard, like you said, your head's going to explode. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, that's the beauty of uh, leaning more heavily on the fantasy than the sci-fi here. It doesn't necessarily need to make sense. Right. It just needs to be interesting. Yes. And along those lines, we get Ted tells his tape recorded story in a place that is even further outside of time and place because he's worried about his thoughts. He has Shimi create a place outside of Agul Ciento that only exists in Shimi's mind, or maybe it's a little pocket universe of some sort. Yeah. Ted describes it as a balcony on the dark tower. Yeah. Or so something like that. This very odd little place. and. Of course, because it's coming out of the mind of Shimi, it becomes this gingerbread house for whatever reason. And it's fully detailed, like the seat's made out of marshmallows and it's perfectly mm -hmm. it, it's it, it, it's perfectly soft. And if he looks out the window, you see a road of licorice and everything is perfectly done candy wise. It's like, wow, he's really gone all out in here and creating this like it could literally be just a room with a tape recorder set. But nope, I'm going to make this this beautiful gingerbread house. It's like, mm -hmm. whoa. Um, very similar type of powers as to what Susanna seems to have, except Susanna's only exists in her mind and they seem sort of crude compared to this. Um, yes. We get a sense that the powers that, and this is why they're breakers, that Ted and Shimi and Dinky have are far beyond any of the type of shine that Jake has or the creation of materials that Eddie has. Like this seems at a much higher level. 
Yes, I think that that's certainly what sets these folks apart from most people and the fact that they are probably more powerful than most breakers, yeah. I think is important. And yep. Ted, Ted especially, it's right. pretty clear that Ted's like the super breaker. Yeah, and they keep saying that he's indispensable, that if they're found out, they probably won't kill Ted. Mm -hmm. But they'll make him suffer by hurting people he cares about. Exactly. And um, one final thing that I, I felt like was just ready to make my head explode was thinking about how the Devar toy camp appears to be directly beneath or along the path of the beam that they are currently breaking. They talk about like literally looking up through the skylights and imagining their minds connecting with the beam and then starting to peel it apart bit by bit and breaking it. Does this mean that Devartoy has to be beneath the beam that they're working on? And if they've already broken two beams doing this, did they move this camp each time? You know, are they just slowly making their way around the circumference of the Dark Tower? And how long has this been going on? Like, it seems like this commerce system, if you will, of the Kalas and abducting the children and siphoning yep. off their mental powers to feed the breakers and enhance their breaking ability. That's been going on for time out of mind. Like the, the, the people in the, yeah. in the Kala don't remember really when that didn't happen. They just have a vague notion that it didn't always. So these are details that we, that, that we probably don't need to have, but it just made me wonder like if, this is a whole like town built beneath this beam and they've been doing this for an unknown period of time, but it sounds like a long time. Yep. And another beam just, just broke. broke. Right. Was it this group that broke it? Was it a different group that broke it? How did that work? Because I do, to your point, I thought the exact same thing that this camp needs to be directly under the beam because I got the sense from a visual perspective that they're chipping away at it on a perpendicular angle, like a 90 degree mm -hmm. angle. So they're coming straight up and that it wouldn't work if you're coming sideways and they would be hundreds of miles away if they were trying to get a beam that was going the other direction. I just, yeah, again, I think maybe we're just not supposed to worry about the details of time and space because if we thought about it too much, it would either <laughs> all fall apart or our heads would literally explode. Yes. Galaxy brain for all of us. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, well, let's clear it out a little bit and get straight to the fun stuff, because that might be the only way we can be be safe here. Jay, do you want yes, to start us off? Sure. Let's stuff our brains back in and have <laughs> some fun. Yeah. So um, every time you've said them, I've had this this thought that Pimley and Finley sound like Hobbit names. <laughs> yes. And I, I don't know if that's like intentional by King or what, but it's just like. Every time you said, and every time King wrote, Pimley and Finley, Pimley and Finley, Pimley, I'm, I'm waiting for somebody to ask for when is Elevensies, you know, like, <laughs> what's going on here with these Hobbit names? And is it clear as to why Prentice changed his name to Pimley? Yeah, they, it seems like everybody involved in this whole operation, they have these naming ceremonies, the, the low men have one where they, it's part of their becoming, um, that religious aspect to their their culture and um finley seems like he 
had that that's his tahin name or something right it's something about his tribe or family and i think when pimley became part of this i don't know group of wardens or jailers he was in, indoctrinated in by changing his name got it that that's all in in there somewhere in kind of some vague terms but that's me flipping forward trying to get to the good parts mm-hmm. <laughs> enough of these emotional moments <laughs> so king continues i'm not gonna go through all of them but just so many references to other books and pop cultures we get maverick narnia the ten commandments abbott and costello Hieronymus bosch Queen Mary, Jim Jones, Huck Finn, H.G. Wells, The Collector, Michael Jordan, Martha and the Vandellas, The O.K. Corral, The Sneetches from Harry Potter, and The Virginian. And that was just sort of a sampling of what I was doing as I was flipping through with my notes. And it's just like, they're coming hard and fast throughout the series, but more so now. And part of that is because of the way that Agul Siento is set up where people can get whatever sort of pop culture they want. And Mm -hmm. so there's lots of pop culture here and now that we've got more characters who have been in our world it's not just eddie and Susanna and jake there's more people who can make some of these references as well and i think that king has always used an awareness of pop culture as a signal of it makes good characters and by good i mean not evil characters i suppose um even better because like, oh, not only is Eddie like a gunslinger and he's heroic and all that stuff, but he's also just chock full of pop culture, <laughs> yes. right? And, you know, Susanna's the same way where she can just, you know, sing and do all these wonderful things. And so in some ways, I think he can offer the same like bump to a character like Finley, like make Finley a fan of these books, like and and have him be interested in literature and and want to know about like mystery novels and yes. this, you know, and, and want to get into a discussion about it with, with Dinky, you know, it's like, Oh, I, I read a book by the same author and let's <laughs> sit down and have coffee. And so it's King's like using that as sort of like a shorthand for maybe he's not all bad mm, Yep. because I think that's how King views people in real life. And that's, um, and maybe an expectation he might have of his readers to say, you know, like, if you like my books, that probably means you like to read. And if you like to read, you probably read lots of other stuff. And if you read lots of other stuff, then you're like me. And um, we share that in common. So I'm going to make the characters that I like more likable by making them readers, by making them love reading. Yeah. And um, so I see that as a maybe a little bit of what King's up to. I agree. I could see that. So I like the uh, little breakfast at Tiffany's reference that Ted makes when he is able to comfort his fellow breakers when they get a case of the mean reds. Mm. As far as I know, that is an original colloquialism in that book. I couldn't find anything else that referenced it besides breakfast at Tiffany's. Somebody calling not the blues, but the reds. Yep. And there's a very distinct difference. Um, so, as of course, Ted knows it, <laughs> yes. which is just goes to my previous point. You know, Ted Ted is a walking source. He's a walking encyclopedia, basically. I mean, that's one of the best things about his character is that he's all about books and everything he does. Even in, we talked about this in the previous episode, like Ted in a moment of huge danger and 
panic and rush. He's still like, well, that reminds me of this book. And <laughs> if I quote that to you, maybe it'll motivate you to get your ass in gear. You know? Yes. We get a lot about how the Breakers world works and what's happening in Agul Ciento. And one of the more obvious things that you can placate a group of people with is sex. And so they create these simulated sex that you could have with anybody you want. And I mm -hmm. believe it's I believe it's Dinky who's sort of bragging because he had Marilyn Monroe, Nicole Kidman, and Madonna all in the same week. Um yeah, I guess that's something to be proud of, Tinky. Go for it, yeah, dude. <laughs> he clearly has a type. The, uh, <laughs> the 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 bottle blonde. Yes, yes. <laughs> ah, yeah. <laughs> um. Oh, I really liked when Oi agreed with Jake during the calf ceremony. I, th mm. I think it was during the calf ceremony, but basically Jake says something, and then Oi agrees with him, and then the line is, "If Ake said it." You could take it to the Bumbler Bank, as far as Oi was concerned. <laughs> and to that I add, I would gladly keep my money in the Bumbler Bank. <laughs> it seems like a safe place. Security and trust at the Bumbler Bank. <laughs> That's right. Bumbler, Bumbler, and Bumbler. I wonder how their CD rates are, though. <laughs> so as I mentioned earlier, there is a a revival theater at uh, Agul Ciento, and it's once again showing Star Wars for its umpity ump revival. The Breakers just can't get enough of this movie. There seems to be a lot of uh, Star Wars commentary by King throughout the series. I think this mm -hmm. is, you know, we mentioned that he did it in the interview preparing for this book. but We've had a couple of other Star Wars references with Eddie and Jake throughout, throughout the series. And here's yet another one. Yeah, and the last time somebody mentioned it was Eddie thinking, you know, if I never see Star Wars again, it'll be too soon. Yep. So there's one character who we are supposed to be very sympathetic with and who thinks Star Wars is enough's enough already. Right. And then, then there are these other characters who are largely faceless and we don't know them at all. And so we only know them by reputation. And part of that is that they can't stop watching this movie that Eddie thinks is enough is enough. Right. So is this some sort of, I don't know, uh, what, what's King trying to say about Star Wars fans here? <laughs> yeah. You know, we mentioned before that this came out right when the, I think the Clone Wars came out. So we're in the midst of the prequels. Mm -hmm. And I just get the sense that King was not happy with it. He, he mentioned it in the, in, the, in the interview, like I said, and he's mentioned it a couple times already. And I just, I think he wants people to explore and look at new and different things perhaps is his commentary here but yeah it, he's done it enough times that it's noticeable and it seems like he's trying to make a point it reminds me of a, a line in the book of mormon where one of the mormons is making an analogy about how the book of mormon itself is like a third book it's like a third testament yeah and he says wait a second you mean the bible's actually a trilogy and the book of mormon is the empire strikes back I'm interested. <laughs> and every time I hear that line, I get kind of annoyed that Star Wars has such a big place in pop culture that if you say the word trilogy to somebody, more often than not, what they will think of is Star Wars. You know, it's not the only example of trilogy out there, but it seems to, I don't know, overshadow everything. It's like trilogy equals Star Wars. And 
it even has soaked into the pop culture to the point where other pop culture is referencing it in a way that is like here and like in Book of Mormon. It's sort of, uh, I kind of see it as somewhat derogatory. <laughs> like, yeah. like, let's let's kind of just sidestep away from Star Wars a little bit. We don't have to pretend it doesn't exist. We don't have to hate it. But maybe, as you said, let's find some other things to enjoy as well. Such as the Dark Tower Septology. Yeah. Or is it an octology? Yeah. <laughs> or is it a sept and a halftology? <laughs> <laughs> Um, the last fun stuff item that I had was the test that Ted tells us about reminded me so much of the Voigt-Kampf test from Blade Runner. It almost could have been the Voigt-Kampf test. Like, you know, I'm waiting for him to say, yeah. And the next question was, you see a turtle, you flip it on its back. It's baking in the sun. <laughs> you know, like, what the hell? I, Do you think King had that in mind or, or what? I don't know, but I thought the exact same thing. Like, and I don't know if it's just because I watched Blade Runner recently again, but it was on top of my mind when they came to that scene as well. Especially since Ted knew that there was more to the test than the test. Mm -hmm. And so he gave the answer that he thought that they weren't expecting to hear and yet wanted to hear. I think that was the the actual test. The test was like a meta test. First yes. of all, it's like every word on this piece of paper kind of doesn't matter. It's you need to be able to read our minds to know what we actually want to happen. That's the point. Yep. And if you can't do that, we're not interested. Yes. So another way of thinking about it is the Ghostbusters test that ah. Bill Murray does. <laughs> what? So so <laughs> So if if Ted's a good-looking blonde, he would have passed it mm -hmm. much easier. Those co-eds are clairvoyant for some reason. Why do I say co-ed when I think of that movie? It's like such an antiquated term. <laughs> to be fair, Ghostbusters is becoming an antiquated movie. Yeah. All right. That's all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our contact information is available in the show notes. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. And our Twitter handle is at twoguysdarktower. You can also find us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash twoguysdarktower or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Two Guys Dark Tower. If you like the show, and if you're on episode 48, you probably like this show, please rate us on iTunes. Next episode, join us as we cover Book 7 of the Dark Tower, The Dark Tower, Part 2, Chapters 9 through 12. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. Finley Otego? Steak tea. <laughs> uh, damn you, Finley Otego.